So in the 1950s, the theories and uh, ideas and concepts of a guy named Abraham Maslow uh, changed psychology forever. Prior to Maslow, psychology was essentially uh, the study of what was wrong with people. Psychologists studied people's ailments, their mental disorders, their neuroses, uh, to try and find some relief to what was wrong with people. But Maslow asked an interesting question. He asked, what if people could tend toward being right? What if they could tend toward being healthy? What if, if people could actually improve? And so Maslow began to look at what are the basic needs of humans? What, are, what do people need to thrive, to grow, to, to move forward in, in life? And he developed, and if you took Psychology 101 in college, you may remember this, he developed Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It looks a little bit like this. Let me walk you through what Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, means. It starts on the bottom level. These are our basic survival needs. We all need food. We all need shelter. We all need sleep. Moving up from there, once those needs are met, we all need safety. Once we're not struggling to find food, we move toward creating environments that are safe for us. Once those basic kind of survival needs are met, you move to higher order needs, the, the need to, to be loved, the need for belonging. This was revolutionary when Maslow began to present these ideas that these might actually be human needs. Once you have a sense of belonging or sense of being loved and loving others, it moves toward esteem, this sense that you actually have value, that you have dignity. And so Maslow said that we should work on our needs, and he said these needs will, will dominate our thoughts until we find them uh, fulfilled. And you can't move up the layers until one layer is complete. For instance, if I am starving, I can't really work on or won't really work on the need uh, for love and belonging. And if I'm starving, that need will dominate uh, my life and will become even more uh, robust until that need is met. There's an interesting theory that people might actually be able to improve. But Maslow added one other thing. There's something at the top of the hierarchy that's important for us as we look at Ephesians this evening. Maslow said, our highest order need is purpose, a need for growth. And, and he used the word uh, self-actualization. I may argue with his terminology, but I don't argue with the idea that we need purpose. If that's the case, if we actually need purpose in life, we need meaning in life, then a lack of purpose in life, a floating, a drifting through life, isn't just something that can leave us unhappy. It's actually something that will leave us unhealthy. And so if we need purpose, it's worth asking the question, where do we go to find it? Last week, we began this series looking at Ephesians, and Zach told us that, that God has designed each of us for a purpose as he covered the greeting, the first two verses in Ephesians. Tonight, we're going to pick up on that thought, and we're going to look at Paul's opening thoughts, what scholars often call a doxology or a benediction to open Ephesians. We're going to look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We're going to see God's big purpose, his big plan for salvation in this world and how it has a whole lot to do with our purpose. One of the interesting things about this section that we're going to look at tonight, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, in the English, it reads like multiple sentences, even multiple paragraphs uh, in, in English. But in Greek, it reads very differently. In the original Greek that Paul wrote Ephesians in, this is one incredibly long sentence. 
one thought connected and strung together. There's actually the longest sentence in the entire New Testament, 257 words. Uh, For comparison, it's uh, almost exactly the same length as the entire Gettysburg Address. Stanley Fish, who wrote this really interesting book called How to Write a Sentence and How to Read One, uh, talked about what makes a, a truly compelling, a truly great sentence. And one of the categories that he used, he called it a subordinating sentence. Essentially, it's a sentence where you have one main idea and then you just continue to hang ideas off of that one main idea. But it's always important that we remember the main idea. This is what Paul is doing in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. He's got one main idea. God has blessed us. And then he explores that to the farthest reaches possible. Tim Keller, who is a pastor up in New York, said, if you really engage Ephesians chapter one, you'll get a nosebleed because at once you're moved from your own perspective up to God's big, grand perspective. And it's just like that. You move so fast that you'll get a nosebleed. And if you've never really read uh, Ephesians chapter one or never dug into this scripture, uh, it may be hard to, to pick up all the pieces. So here would be my encouragement. We're gonna read it together. My encouragement for you would be pick up on things that stand out to you things that are maybe repeated by Paul, because oftentimes an author will use repetition to try to drive a point home. And remember that this all hangs on the one phrase, God has blessed us. So let's read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 together. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to, his, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All right, remember that all hangs on God has blessed us. Paul tells us that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. I don't know how you feel walking into this place, but I don't know if you feel like you have every spiritual blessing. It's a little bit of a strange statement. I mean, it's difficult uh, when the circumstances in our lives either whisper or scream something very different that we're maybe not blessed. When maybe in the last six months or a year, maybe you've experienced a pay cut at your work due to no fault of your own. Maybe you actually lost work and the only reason you're here is because you had to relocate even though you didn't want to. 
Maybe you're constantly arguing with that person that conversations are supposed to be really, really easy with. Maybe you never seem to, to quite have enough. Even though you work so hard, you're never quite comfortable. It's hard to see how Paul can say you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. And even if we look at the circumstances of Paul, it's kind of hard to see how he can be saying he's blessed with every spiritual blessing. As Zach said last week, Ephesians was probably a letter that was a circular letter, meaning it went around to multiple churches. But even if you look at his time in Ephesus, it's hard to say looking at his circumstances that he had every spiritual blessing. Paul traveled to Ephesus in uh, 52 to 57 AD. He actually took a couple of different trips there. Paul did missionary journeys around the whole uh, known world, the Roman Empire in his day, setting up churches. And on his second and third missionary journeys, he was in Ephesus. On his first missionary journey, he, he helped establish or at least uh, uh, grow the church in Ephesus. But on his second trip, on his third missionary journey, that became actually his ministry post, the place from which he did ministry. He was there for three years. And in 1 Corinthians, another letter in the New Testament that, uh, that, that talks about his time in Ephesus and was actually written from Ephesus, uh, Paul says he's in Ephesus because of the great opportunity that's there, even though he had a lot of adversities. And in uh, verse 15, or chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he actually says he had to fight wild beasts in Ephesus, which is probably a reference to uh, those that worshipped the goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of the hunt. It was probably some hyperbolic type statement, but it would be awesome if Paul actually fought wild beasts in Ephesus. So either way, you can see that his circumstances in Ephesus didn't necessarily show that he had every spiritual blessing. And the church, when Paul showed up, when it really wasn't a church at all, it was just a gathering of believers, was about a dozen people. A dozen people in a very sophisticated city. Ephesus was, uh, was a very wealthy city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Uh, it's about four miles inland from the GNC, so there's a lot of trade going in and out, a lot of diversity, tons of wealth, art, uh, architecture was incredible in this city. Imagine an ancient New York City. So an ancient New York City, populated people moving in and out, and there are these 12 believers there that want to follow Jesus in a city that doesn't much care whether they do or not, but actually could be changed if they do. And it puts the size of this group in perspective, if you think about it. But this, in this circumstance, Paul says, you have every spiritual blessing. And Paul can say this because he is reminding us that the blessings of God, these spiritual blessings that we have, they actually aren't in our circumstances because our circumstances change. And what Paul's talking about doesn't change. And some of us are here in this room uh, in a difficult situation. We find ourselves in a difficult place, a place we never thought that we'd be. Maybe a place that hurts. Maybe a place where there are more unknowns than knowns. I remember when I first uh, got married 15 years ago, uh, I made a, a vow, uh, a pledge that many of us have made if we're married that we would stay together as a couple, that we would hold firm to each other, that we would stay in relationship close to each other for better or for worse. The thing was, Abby and I got most of the for worse stuff out of the way really early. Uh, just a few weeks into our marriage, uh, Abby was in the hospital with pneumonia. 
we wrecked, uh, in fact, totaled our one and only reliable car. I was living with my young bride in my in-law's basement. That's a good way to provide uh, for your young bride. If you want a sense of swelling pride, go live in your in-law's basement. Uh, on September 11th of that year, just a few months after uh, we were married, two planes hit two towers in New York City, and the next day, Abby's grandfather, who she was very, very close with, passed away. Life got messy really, really quick. And in these moments, we oftentimes find ourselves saying, what in the world is going on here? My circumstances are definitely not saying that I am blessed. And we begin to treat God like a spiritual ATM. It's like, hey, God, I made this commitment that's in line with your character. I put good in. I expect good out with interest in return. And when I don't get it, well, I must not be blessed. Or maybe you're at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe your circumstances are way better than you ever thought they would be. Maybe you're blessed beyond your wildest dreams. Maybe work is going incredibly well or school is going incredibly well. Maybe, maybe uh, your marriage is going great. The 401k is stacking up. You've got kids and they're, they're, they're uh, moderately respectful to the people around them and decently well-groomed when you take them out in public. Like everything is so much better than you thought it would ever be. But the blessings that Paul's talking about aren't our circumstances. The blessings of God are in who you are and who you've been invited to be. This long sentence that Paul gives us, he's trying to help us avoid the thinking that the blessings of God can be summed up in our life, in our circumstances, because there's something better. The blessings of God don't come in our circumstance, they come in our position. And Paul here is reminding us that we have been chosen in the past, that we've been redeemed in the present, and that we've been promised a future. We've been chosen in the past, we've been redeemed in the present, and we've been promised a future. That's every spiritual blessing. We're gonna look at each of those individually. Let's go back to verses four and five. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption as heirs or to sonship through Christ Jesus. And this inclusion in God's plan, this, this, this chosenness, isn't like uh, what you maybe experienced when you were a kid or if you're like me, uh, you'd go to the park and you'd try to play basketball, pick up basketball, and you know, you'd start the game and everybody would kind of line up and there'd be two captains and everybody would pick, 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 and then you'd realize that you're standing there and you're the last one to be picked. And the only reason you make it on a team is because you have to even out the sides. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He says, no, 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 you've actually been invited into the family business. Paul here is using language of Roman legal adoption when he says that you're heirs, you've been adopted. And that was very common in Paul's day. It was common if, if, a, if an estate owner someone who had an estate to, to be managed. If he didn't have a male heir, he, he would adopt someone to not just be a part of the family, but to take over the family business, to, to take all the legal uh, uh, responsibility and authority of that estate. And so what Paul is telling us here is, you who were once not promised this future legacy, now you've been adopted in. And Paul says, God has made you heir to his kingdom, this cosmic thing that he's doing and setting all things right. And he was up to this long before you knew anything about it. We're given a purpose. And Paul says that purpose is to be holy. 
This word holy simply means to be set apart for a purpose. Maslow said we need purpose. Here Paul is saying this is where you find it. And sometimes this conversation about the word uh, predestined, which is a word that means chosen beforehand or ordained before you've earned the right to have the honor. And it's only used six times in, in, in all of the New Testament, but this conversation on predestined centers on who is and who isn't, who's chosen and who isn't. This is a topic that's been discussed in the church for a couple thousand years now, and people have prayed about it and talked about it and discussed it and argued over it and been divided over it for as long as they've been talking about it. And, and there are people that uh, know a lot more Bible than I do and are more faithful to Jesus than I'll ever be that, that, that completely disagree on what I believe Paul is saying here, and there are some that do agree. And even here at Summit, there are uh, folks that have very different opinion on what Paul is talking about here when he says, predestined. And one of the things I love about this place is that we can follow Jesus together and learn from each other in the process. So for those of you that were hoping because I said the word predestined that this will be the definitive predestination sermon in the history of Summit, well, you'll have to wait a little bit longer. Because I think in this conversation, what's not paramount, it's not who is and who isn't chosen, predestined. It's what for. That's the paramount question. What does God choose people for? Because if we answer the question, what does God choose people for? We actually get a pretty good answer to who is and who isn't. And when the first readers of uh, Ephesians would have heard this terminology, he chose us, they, they would have instantly thought of the entire history of Israel because choosing people is nothing new to God. They would have thought about Genesis 12 where God shows up and talks to this guy named Abraham, this elderly farmer out in the middle of nowhere and he says these incredible things to Abraham. He says, you know what? I will make you a great nation. I will make your name great. I'm gonna bless you and all the people of the world will be blessed through you. This is terminology that called all the way back to the beginning of Genesis chapter one, the beginning of, of God's relationship with people. This was the original call of the first people, the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, where he says to them, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna give you every good thing. I'm gonna give you all of it. You can control all of it. Be a blessing to others. Live your life in a way, do your work in a way, use your time in a way that helps others live fully. Even after the fall, even after Adam and Eve turn away from God's plan because they believe that their plan might just be better than God's plan, God does not give up on people. God still chooses people. So he sits there with Abraham and he says, I'm gonna make you a great nation, Israel. You're gonna be my display people. You're gonna, you're gonna live in a way that is so good for the world around you that people are gonna say, I want to be a part of that. What God says to Abraham is, I'm choosing you to be the father of a nation so that you show me to the world. So from this very first conversation with Abraham, here's what we see. That God choosing people isn't about privilege. It's about purpose. People are chosen for the sake of others, not at the expense of others. What God is saying is while the curse of isolation was brought into the world through people, and that's what happened when Adam and Eve fell, they, when they uh, turned away from God's plan, they hid from each other and they hid from God. What he's saying is though the curse of isolation enters this world through people, blessing is going to as well. So go be my people, he says. 
500 years after this conversation with Abraham, God's people, Israel, they're not free to live God's character in the world to be his display people because they're enslaved in Egypt. They spend their hours doing what others say rather than following hard after God. And God says it can't be this way because I don't give up on people. I still choose people. And so he begins to work through this guy named Moses who was a former prince turned shepherd and he shows up in a burning bush, which is a strange thing to do, but he's God. He can show up however he wants to. And so he starts talking to Moses through this burning bush and he says, hey, I need you to go free my people because no one is meant to be enslaved, imprisoned, not by others, not by their sin, not by their own fears for that matter. So go and free the people. And Moses says, how am I supposed to do that? I mean, they won't, they won't believe me. I'm just, a, I'm just a guy. Who am I supposed to say is sending me? And in Exodus chapter three, God says to him, I am who I am. That's who you're supposed to say is sending me. I think maybe a better translation in the Hebrew actually though is I will be who I am. What God says is I'm gonna be consistent with my character. I'm gonna be a God who breaks the chains of oppression. I'm gonna be there and hear the cries of people. I will always be there for people in need. I will be who I am, so trust me and go. And Moses does and he frees the people. And God leads them to a new land, a land of freedom, another Eden, just like the original garden where they can go back to what they were made for, to be God's display people, to live lives so full of love and joy and peace and goodness that the world says, man, I gotta get near that God. When people are freed from slavery for the purpose of displaying his character, chosen for the sake of others, to point people home to God. That's why God chooses people yet again. Further down the road, about a thousand years later, Israel, God's people, are kicked out of the promised land. They're kicked out of that land because of another rebellion, another turn away from God and away from loving each other, just like Adam and Eve's. And there's another exile, just like Adam and Eve's. But there's this prophet named Isaiah who speaks for God and he says, hey, even in the midst of this, even in the midst of this exile, God still chooses people. In, verse, or in chapter 42 of Isaiah, he says, I will take hold of your hand and I will keep you and you'll be a covenant for my people, and you'll be a light to the nations. He says in chapter 49, don't think too small about my rescue. I'm gonna rescue you. I'm gonna bring you back yet again. But don't think it's just about Israel. I'm gonna make you a light to the Gentiles, to the nations as well, so that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. So yet again, God's people are freed, this time from exile, and they're brought back to the land for a purpose, to be a light, to be a display of his character, to be good for the world around them. God is saying yet again, through the whole history of Israel, through the whole Old Testament and into the new, what he's saying is never forget that you're freed for the sake of others, to point people home to God. Choosing people is nothing new to God. So what does he choose people for? Again and again and again, it is for the sake of others. And when that purpose, yet again, goes undone by Israel, God doesn't give up. He shows up. Jesus comes and he fulfills Israel's call to display God's perfect character perfectly. But here's the deal. If Jesus just came for that, if he just came to display God's character perfectly, we'd still be in exile. 
we'd still be left outside, but he came for more. We were chosen in the past, but we're redeemed in the present. Verse seven of Ephesians says this, in him we've been redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. This word redemption, very common word, not a word we use very often in our vernacular, but a very common word in Paul's day and it evoked the image of of a slave market. Up to half of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves, and so really everyone in any type of, of urban environment would have experienced and walked by or participated in a slave trade, in, in the slave market. So imagine this. Imagine that you are put up on a, on a wooden platform that rotates around, and there are people all around you that are sizing you up. And you have value, but it's only because you can produce something. You're only worth what you can produce. And people are sizing you up and that thought is running through your head that, that I'm just gonna spend my life doing whatever people tell me to do, doing their bidding and their purpose until I can't do it anymore and then I'm gonna be discarded, which is something that for some of us might be unfortunately easy for us to identify with. And that thought's running in your head and that's your reality until one person, the only person that shows up that can change anything about your circumstances shows up, it's a redeemer. The Redeemer is someone who comes and pays the price. Whatever the price was set for you, he says, I'll pay. But not for you to be a slave, for you to go free. And you're brought down off that wooden platform and the shackles are removed from your hand and at once you become human. You're free. That's what God is up to. That's what Jesus came for. When we couldn't free ourselves to live our purpose, Jesus came to free us so that we could. Because everyone's story, our individual stories, are meant to reflect the story of Israel, being freed from bondage in Egypt, being brought back from exile in Babylon, being freed from our own sin that holds us back for a purpose. We're freed from something for something, for a purpose. And we need that redemption. My five-year-old son, who uh, we brought home uh, from, from Haiti just a couple of months ago, he's in the process of mastering uh, the English language. He's five years old, and he's hearing English for the first time, and so he's finding these really creative ways to communicate with us. It's just the cutest uh, things. Uh, but one uh, is he's trying to communicate to us uh, his uh, abilities, and so uh, he's oftentimes walking through the house carrying something that is far too big for a five-year-old to carry, and he's banging up against the walls, and he's kind of tripping and falling over things. And when we say, Josie, let me help you, buddy, he'll say, no, Josie got it. Josie got it. I got it. Josie got it. Josie's strong. I got it. All of it. That's what he says over and over again, all of it. And just to, if, if, well, can I, can I help you with it? No, 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 I got all of it. Which is funny for a five-year-old, but the thing is, a lot of times we don't grow out of that. We, we live life that way. No, no, I got it. I got all of it. I got every bit of it. I got it all by myself. Don't, I got it. And maybe that's partly true. Back to Maslow, maybe, maybe we can work hard enough to provide and be blessed enough to, to provide for our uh, basic needs. Maybe we can get the food and the shelter and the sleep and, that we need. Maybe we can, can get ourselves in an environment of security. And maybe once we've satisfied those needs, maybe we have enough left over to pursue relationships important relationships where we feel loved and, and, and we feel belonging. And maybe that all adds up to uh, an understanding of our own self-worth, but the thing is, we don't got it. 
We don't. And that's part of what we're freed for, freed from this idea that, that, that we got it. The purpose that, that we're made for, our highest need, that only comes from the invitation extended to us through Jesus, the Redeemer, when he drops the shackles. We don't got it. The thing is, if you've been striving harder to, to, to get more and more and more because you believe that somehow you don't have enough, you need to earn more money or, or get more or prove more or accomplish more or be more, maybe it's time to ask the question, what for? I mean, really, what, what for? And more specifically, what were you redeemed for? Blaise Pascal, who was this uh, brilliant mathematician, French mathematician in the 1600s, uh, is often quoted uh, with, with, with this quote, that we all have uh, a God-shaped vacuum in, in our hearts. All people have a God-shaped vacuum in their heart that can't be filled by any created thing, but only by the creator. Part of what that needs is that we need him. We need God to fill that highest need, that highest purpose. And it doesn't mean that we don't need all those other things. It doesn't mean we don't need food and shelter or belonging or to be loved or to have esteem. It doesn't mean that. And honestly, the church hasn't always been really good at recognizing that for people. We need those things and we should do everything we can to help those around us have those things. It just means we need God. We need him as the one who's the giver of all good things and frees us from this idea of self-reliance and self-importance and allows us to freely pursue what we're made for. You wanna know something great? We all have the same primary vocation. We're all made for the exact same thing. We all have different secondary vocations, what our careers are, but we all have the same primary vocation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We're all made for that. And to live that purpose, we need to be freed by the Redeemer. We need Jesus. We don't got it. Why are we given the blessing of being chosen in the past and redeemed in the present? Paul answers that in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, jumping to the end. Here's why. Here's the what for. To be a part of bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, to repair what was lost in that first garden when people first turned away from God and what gets lost every time we act or have a conversation where things are pulled apart that are supposed to be brought together. Unity was tarnished badly in the garden, but it wasn't destroyed forever. Paul says you're invited into God's original work, his original purpose, his original plan, because it still matters. The family business matters. We're heirs. We've been invited into the family business to proclaim salvation and display his character for the sake of others, to point people back home to God. A few years ago, my oldest son, who's now 11, but when he was maybe five or six years old, I was putting him to bed, and we'd read the Bible together every night, and uh, we were reading John chapter 20. And uh, he was kind of dozing off. He'd had a long day of, of you know, working through double-digit edition and different things like that, and he was just wiped. Uh, and so he's kind of dozing off as I'm reading John 20, and then uh, as his eyes are pretty much closed, I read John chapter 20, verse 21. Peace to you, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, 
I am sending you. And when I finished that verse, my son's eyes popped open. He put his hand on the Bible as though to say, hold on a second, I gotta process that. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, um, he said, he said, Daddy, Jesus still says that to people. Now, I would love to take credit for that spiritual insight, but he almost certainly learned it from some incredible volunteer in base camp. And if you serve in base camp, thank you for pouring into my son and helping him know the truth of the gospel. But he said, Daddy, Jesus still says that to people. It's true. Jesus still says that to people. Here in John chapter 20, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's defeated sin and death, and he's coming back to his followers with the express message of don't forget your God's plan A to keep this thing moving forward, to bring people back home to God, nearness to God, where they belong. Jesus still says that to people. He still says that to common people who are willing to believe uncommon things. He still says that to people who aren't perfect but know the one who is. Jesus has this incredibly high opinion of people. Earlier, I said choosing people is nothing new to God. Well, choosing imperfect people is nothing new to God. Jesus, one time, with his followers gathered around him, very early in the gospel, they were still trying to figure out who he was, and he looks at him and he says, you, you're the light of the world. Long before they deserved the compliment, he says, you're the light of the world. Everything you do will either point people toward God or away from him. Every action, every word, it will either give people a glimpse of, of the light of, of the gospel and it will make that light shine far more brightly than it did previously or maybe it'll be as dull as a flicker because of your actions. You're the light of the world. We're gonna spend our lives, our hours, our time, our energy on something and we can spend it on our circumstances either maintaining the good circumstances we have or improving our circumstances. We can make our lives about accumulating more stuff, more wealth, building a temple of perceived safety around ourselves. The problem is we just won't find purpose there. We'll just pursue more stuff. C.S. Lewis once said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That seems like bad news, but it's followed by good news. We've been chosen in the past redeemed in the present and promised a future. The good news is the purpose, the purpose we've been made for, it's a gift. And we don't have to uh, wait until we get all of our ducks in a row, until we get everything in order to live that purpose. We don't have to wait until all the bills are paid or we have enough uh, of people caring for us and we have enough people to care for. We don't have to wait until everything is perfect. If you're wondering if this story, this story about purpose is for you, yet it is right now. Not everything has to be all right. The moment purpose enters your life is the moment that you say, I don't know everything that comes next, but I know I don't got it. I know I need Jesus because through him, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. From that moment, from the moment you say, I believe that purpose is woven into every single moment of your existence. We're invited 
right now, right where we are, to be a part of the Father's business, to join God in proclaiming salvation in word and in our lives, living in a way that points people back to him right now, in this world, right now for eternity. I mean, honestly, guys, if that's not enough to get us up out of our seats, I don't know what is. I don't know whatever would be. If it's not enough to get us uh, to care about our neighbors enough to get to know them, I don't know what would be. If it's not enough to, to, for us to take that bold step of telling people that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is doing something in my life and I, and, I, and I want others to be a part of it. If it's not enough for us to create a place where people can come and experience love and joy and invitation, if it's not enough for us to, to greet people at the door with a warm smile and a handshake and a warm cup of coffee and the gospel when they get into this room and a place to drop off their kids where they can know that their kid matters deeply to God and their child can hear that God wants them to be a part of their family forever. If it's not enough for us to create a place like that, I don't know what would be. If it's not enough for us to open up our lives to, to share with people how God is changing us and how we want to continue to have God change us, if it's not enough for us to serve vulnerable people in our city so they can move past the idea that their life has to be about that desperate need that's right in front of them so that they can see their purpose, man, I don't know what would be. We've been invited into the family business. We are blessed, Paul says. We've been chosen in the past. We've been redeemed in the present. We've been promised a future to join the family business, what God is up to, and we shouldn't settle for our lives being about less. If you're looking for something to latch on to in this long sentence, in this big story, in this nosebleed-inducing scripture, that's a good image for you. Take that with you. Here's what I think it is. We need purpose. And when we go out searching for it, Jesus comes searching for us. And when the price for us to be included was his very life, he says, I'll pay. Let them go. Remove the shackles from their hands they have work to do. But not as slaves not droning away at somebody else's responsibility until they can anymore and then they'll be discarded. No, as heirs, as sons and daughters. They get to join the family business. We get to join God in what he's doing in this world to bring people back to the love and the hope and the care of, of Jesus that they deserve. Let's say yes to being a group of people who do that together for the sake of others. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your big plan, for your incredible story of salvation, how you just will not give up on people and how when we don't got it, you do. I pray that we would be a people who wanna share that message with the world. And we want to live like that message is true. Help us be that in Jesus' name. Amen.